Let's take a moment now as we come to God's Word and ask for His help to understand it. Father in heaven, uh, wherever we are, we are dependent on you. We know that we can only know of you what you reveal of yourself. So would you in your kindness by your spirit give us understanding of you to have true thoughts, thoughts that are worthy of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, some of you know that my daughters play soccer, and I have to admit that when they're playing, I sometimes put them in a kind of awkward position because they're out on the field. Sometimes their coaches have told them to do something dumb, um, to be in a position that is, is not the best. And there I am on the sidelines urging them to move over here or move over there, do something else. And then comes those moments where they have to decide do they do what the coaches told them to do or they hear me yelling, do they run where I'm saying they should go? So they've got the coach's instruction. They've got me. Then they've got their other players who want them to go do something else. Uh, they might have their own gut about what they should do here. That's a lot of voices and a lot of variables. And they're going to run somewhere. They're going to take some sort of action, heeding one of those voices. The one they'll follow is the one that they deem matters most in that moment, uh, the one that has real authority for that moment. I hope it's the coach. I mean, it really probably should be the coach. I know what you're thinking. I should keep my mouth shut. Uh, this is illustrative. Times of decision, times of stress always reveal who has authority in our hearts and in our minds for what we're facing. We're always making choices. Even refusing action is making a choice. Uh, and each choice is informed by an authority. Authorities are more numerous than we sometimes assume. Um, there are formal authorities, there are informal authorities. So when I say authority, I mean Voices that are as different as uh, something God has commanded in the Scripture, a habit that we've been given by our family, or a doctrine of the church. It could be a policy at work. Uh, it could be a boss. It could be a norm of our profession. Like This is how people in my profession do something. It might be a government law. But authority can be less formal. Things like public opinion. Um, what seems popular that puts pressure on us, the seeming consensus of your social media friends, fear of death, your conscience, fear of rejection, fear of the opinion of a particular person, some blogger you've never even met but you've invested with authority, fear of being alone, lots of fear. It's, it's strange, but it's constantly seen that people like us can know what our Maker and our Savior Jesus has said about something and yet give greater authority to one of these other voices, a, a voice that is, might be confused, obviously self-interested, maybe clearly self-destructive, hateful, uh, someone rejecting eternity, and yet we give greater authority to that voice than to our Maker. Why do we act this way? Why would we do that? Why do we ignore and reject the voice of our Maker and our Redeemer in favor of 
any other authority? Well, we have some answers to this in Exodus. Uh, we're going through uh, the book of Exodus here in chapters 5 and 6. As God was coming to save Israel from Egypt, and He began the process of forming a people in relationship with Him, for relationship with Him, they too were having dealings with their Maker and Redeemer, and yet they struggled with what voices to heed. As the Creator, God knows what people are like. Uh, he, he made us. And so he acted with Israel in this situation in such a way that he would be teaching people of all time through how he behaved with them, how he called them. Uh, and so any who pay attention for all time to how he acted here, he's teaching right down to the present. So it seems like we should pay attention. Last week we heard God's word as he uh, shaped Moses for his role as a prophet, priest, king figure. He revealed himself to Moses. He commanded Moses to go back to Egypt uh, to commence this deliverance. Moses tried to disqualify himself, but God insisted that he, the maker, the ruler, was the qualifier. And Moses yielded. Now, in chapter 5, Moses has returned. He was, of course, known to the Hebrews as their own, uh, the one, one of theirs who'd been brought up in the palace. He, they knew, had tried to assert himself as the deliverer, and he'd run afoul of Pharaoh. Now he's back, but he's come with a claim that he has encountered the God of their ancestors, the God who is going to deliver them, the same God uh, of their family heritage who had made covenant with Abraham, renewed it with Isaac, renewed it with Jacob. This was God Almighty, El Shaddai, the Creator. And Moses' Moses's claim comes with signs uh, that he had been given God's authority to speak on his behalf as God is going to be making good his promises of that covenant. And they like this. The Israelites, at the end of chapter 4, we read they liked it. They liked the sound of this, freedom from enslavement. Sounds good. A land of their own sounds good. Favor from the creator and sustainer of the world sounds good. So, as chapter 5 opens, Moses now goes to Pharaoh. And Moses knows how the palace works. This is where he was brought up. And it's likely that people he grew up with are leaders within the palace. They're in positions of influence. So with Aaron at his side, they are able to get access to Pharaoh and they deliver the message from God. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Note one thing here. This message, this initial message, is delivered as a, a formal piece of diplomacy. Thus says the Lord. Means this is a direct message from the ruler. Moses is just the messenger. 
And the Lord is saying he has a higher claim on this people than Pharaoh. Pharaoh's response is very telling. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. He's saying several things embedded here. He may be saying, I don't know a God by the name of Yahweh, the I am who I am. Who is this I am? So why should I submit myself to the orders of a God I don't know? I think, though, that the accent is elsewhere in what he's saying. I think it is more Pharaoh does not acknowledge or recognize the authority of the Lord. He definitely knows that this massive nation that's living within his borders and that is his slave nation is connected with a God, God Almighty, El Shaddai. But the fact that they're calling him by another name is immaterial. doesn't matter to Pharaoh. He has never seen any reason why he should respect the Hebrews' God. It's as if he's saying here, hold on, look around. Look around. Who's in control? I do not know the Lord. I do not recognize the Lord. Has the God of this people ever done anything for them, ever shown that he has power? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let this people go. So again, let's be very clear. Pharaoh immediately makes the claim that the highest authority in the land is himself. He is the God of Egypt. His word is law. From the highest to the least, all in Egypt must yield to him because he holds the power of life and death. In other words, he claims to be the sovereign. So even under the threat of plague and the sword, which Moses uh, warns that God will bring if he isn't obeyed, Pharaoh claims supremacy. You're distracting the people. Get back to work. He's saying that his wishes, his plans for Egypt, his plans and his desires for all the people here are what matters. His voice is the one that matters. His authority. And next, he will demonstrate the truth of his claim. He's not just going to say it. He's going to show that he is the one whose authority matters. He takes away the resources of Israel to do what they're required to do. Make bricks, but without straw. The straw is, is the substance in the brick that the mud adheres to. It's what allows the brick to stick together, binding the brick. So this is a calculated message. It's not just that he's saying you're lazy, uh, that your, your idleness is what's getting you into trouble. He says that with his mouth, but he's sending a message that their lives are in his hands. Even your slave task, he's showing them, is impossible without his help, impossible without uh, him making it possible. His word is what matters. Do you want to survive Israel, he says? Then know beyond a doubt 
that I hold the power of life and death. And note how also he delivers the message. He sends the taskmasters who say, thus says Pharaoh. Remember, it's that same oral formula that Moses had used, meaning that uh, the word, this is the word of one who is sovereign. Thus says the sovereign. You can almost hear a shriek in Pharaoh's communication. Does the Lord say he's sovereign? I'll show you who's sovereign. He does. He, does. he in fact, shouts when the hopeless Israelite foreman, they come before him and they, they come in to beg him. Verse 17, he says, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. Whew, this is a low point. Moses and Aaron meet the foremen as they come out from Pharaoh, and they say, The Lord look on you and judge, because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. These foremen are declaring a faith here that, in fact, Pharaoh has the power of life and death. Pharaoh is sovereign. Whatever it is you've said, whatever you've, you claim to be speaking from the Lord, Pharaoh's sovereign. It's a rough spot for Moses and Aaron. I mean, Moses knows that he has no authority uh, or power of his own. He can't, he can't do anything. He only speaks what the Lord directs, and he can only do demonstration of God's power that God has directly given. So he's done his part, and at this moment, nobody believes the Lord. And that's his complaint, verses 22 to 23. Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Have you noticed that when God answers one of our complaints or he engages our questions, he, he often just sets the question or the complaint aside and goes straight to the heart of the matter? what we're really talking about. It can seem like he's ignoring the complaint, but he knows what's underneath it. He knows what's driving it. He knows the source, the intention, and he goes for that issue. That's how Jesus consistently engaged people because it's how God has always done it. And Moses here, we can see through God's response, Moses is doubting God's authority and his power. Pharaoh obviously has it, and so Moses is doubting God's. He's doubting that God can do what he said he would do, deliver this people. Why did you ever send me, he says. It's a way of saying, I feel caught. I feel, I feel like I'm on the losing side. I'm caught on the losing side, that you did a bait and switch, and you put me in this position. Why did you ever send me? Okay, you're a God. You, can't, you claim to be the foundation of life, the sustainer of life. 
But right now, Pharaoh is the only one showing he can do anything. He can actually affect our lives, and he is. And it's evil only. Well, Moses and the Israelites are subject to conflicting voices and claims of authority. Like, like you, today, and every single day. Your maker and redeemer, Jesus Christ, has communicated in his person and his written word about how he made people to live, what would be good for us, uh, how to live in relationship with, them, uh, with him. Uh, he's communicated what leads to peace, what leads to life and joy. He's spoken richly. He's spoken fully in his word about the blessings of submission to him. And guided by his Holy Spirit, his church has passed on this word and remained consistent to the teaching through 2,000 years and all around the world. And yet, every day you hear other claims. Uh, claims to speak authoritatively about what people are like. It's a different account of personhood. Uh, claims about what you should pursue. Most of the claims, most of the voices today, there are, are not even coherent visions. They're not consistent. They're not um, full ideas about what makes a good life, just fragments. Most of the demands of your actions uh, are reducing life to pleasure or a particular comfort or avoiding a discomfort. Most of the messages we hear today refuse to acknowledge the very basic fact that we get old, our bodies break, and we die. They don't want to confront that. In the West today, there is a concerted effort from the right, from the left, to ignore judgment to ignore the reality of eternal life that we go on, to ignore the spiritual dimensions of our life. Uh, when I was in graduate school working on literary theory, I was constantly struck at how reductive it all was, how each of these theories has reduced life uh, and how little of life they accounted for, especially spiritual life. And I, I, at the time, I thought only academics with seared consciences and kind of depraved commitment to rejecting God could be deceived like this, that they have no spiritual life or that love is reducible to just chemicals. But we live in a reductive atmosphere. We live in a kind of Egypt. Uh, and our kids are growing up with it all, all around. Pharaoh says... There is no God uh, outside of Egypt. He is the God of Egypt. There's no God outside of your slavery. And you must heed his voice alone. And we have our analogies to that. Claims of authority all around us that reduce life uh, to survival, to eking out just a little more pleasure, a little more of life, but in order to do so, reducing it to its most basic um, animal-like pieces. There is no Almighty, there is no Spirit, there is no eternity, goes these voices. But the Lord makes an invitation. 
He speaks into this. He speaks into it now, and he speaks into it now from there, from Egypt. Heed his voice. This is his invitation. Heed his voice. Believe him. Trust him. Before he acts, notice this, is, this message comes before he acts. Believe him that he will. Believe him that he's got a plan. Believe him that he is about to redeem. That's the situation in which we are before Jesus returns to fulfill his vision for the world, to fulfill his rule. Believe that he will and act accordingly. That's his invitation. This is what God said to Moses. Now you'll see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am the I am. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as wanderers. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God is going to act. He promises. He promises it, and he does so on the basis of his own name. I think you heard the refrain, I am the I am. I will do it four times. He bases his promise on his own name. He promises redemption and faithfulness to his covenant. Yes, there are powerful voices arrayed against him. Today, there are powerful forces arrayed against him. But the maker of all things has promised to act on behalf of the people he is in covenant with. And this is a call to faith, a call to trust, that despite the authority of fear, despite all the ways that fear and intimidation come to us, driving us to respond according to what's immediate, according to what will um, keep discomfort away. There is a God who sees farther, who sees beyond the immediate, and He knows all, and He has a good plan for His people. So let's recall this for ourselves in our position as exiles. This is the same Lord the one speaking there is the same Lord who came down to become one of us in our slavery, in our bondage, 
to redeem all of mankind for everlasting life. He has promised to return and bring the heavenly realms together with the earthly, uniting them. He is going to complete His design for us. It's going to happen whether or not we live like it's going to happen. Whether or not we live in accordance with it is going to happen. But if we believe Him now, we can be part of His liberating movement. We can live free, though the world screams otherwise. Though the world screams, live only for today, we can live for forever. Let's turn to Him. Turn to Him. Jesus is going to bring about the promised land. We're in the story. We're going to be in it one way or another. We're in it, and He's inviting us to believe Him and to be shaped for it now, to be shaped by Him now for life forever. Let's do so. Father in heaven, thank you for showing the ways that you act and the ways that you call us, call your covenant people before you act in obvious ways, before you reveal the brokenness of the earthly authorities, before you uh, scatter them in the pride of their position. Thank you that you call us to faith. And I pray that you would give us that faith. In the name of Jesus, amen.